KMTT, Kimitzion Tetzay Torah. Thursday, Thursday's Shir, the series on redemptive sketches with Harav Moshe Tarigan. Any honest discussion of the process of Geula, and more particularly the process of Geula which has been launched in our century, in our lifetime, any discussion must of course address and tackle a very famous Gemara in Ksuvos commenting on an oft-repeated Pasuk in Shir HaShirim. Shir HaShirim is the great lyric of Jewish history describing our relationship with HaKadosh Baruch Hu, Am Yisrael's unique interaction and encounter with its God, its lover. It casts the relationship between HaKadosh Baruch Hu and Am Yisrael, it pitches it within the romantic metaphor of man and woman. It has a wistfulness and almost a yearning, nostalgic for bygone eras of closeness and proximity before betrayal and defiance ushered in the great era of Jewish exile. It describes various high points, high watermarks in the relationship between Kuchabrichu and Akadosh the lives of the Avos, the experiences immediately after Yitzias Mitzrayim, the entry into Eretz Yisrael, the ushering in of the great era of Jewish dynasty, of Jewish empire, and also foreshadows some of the suffering that Am Yisrael will endure throughout the long diaspora, the long Galus. And on three occasions in Shir Hashirim, the Rabboni Shalom demands an oath, primarily it seems from the Jewish people. The first oath appears in the second parak, the seventh pasuk, Hishbati Aschem, Benos Yerushalayim, I demand that you swear, and at least literally, Benos Yerushalayim means Jews. Hashem asks the Jewish nation to swear, Im ta'iru ve'im ta'oru es ha'ahava ha'ahava Don't awaken, don't prompt, don't advance the love until I desire it, until I crave it. This Pasuk appears two other times in Shir Hashirim, once in Parakei Pasuk Ches, with slight differences in, uh, excuse me, Parakimol Pasukei, Shmati Yashem and Os Yushalayim, almost the exact same Pasuk as Parak Beis Pasuk Zayim. Then again in Parak Ches Pasuk Dalid, with slight differences. Shmati Yashem and Os Yushalayim, Mata Iru, Umata Aru, Es Ahava, Achetechpats. Almost uh, asking the rhetorical question, don't. Why should you awaken? Why should you catalyze or um, advance this resumption of our loving relationship until I desire it? There's no question that these oaths are expressing a certain attitude which HaKadosh Baruch Hu presents and which he expects us to adopt of not accelerating redemption, of not um, preempting redemption before its proper time. As I mentioned in earlier Shira, one of the dangers of the redemptive experience is the preempting of redemption in a premature fashion. And this is always hounded and haunted, the redemptive experience. The Shevet of Ephraim calculated an incorrect departure date from Mitzrayim, left before HaKadosh Baruch Hu, so to speak, was ready for them, and they were slaughtered in the desert. Um, during the second Gula, the Gula of, um, of Ezra, Shivas Tzion, so both Achashverosh and Bel Shatzar miscalculated the proper time of redemption. 
So HaKadosh Baruch Hu is presenting some sort of attitude, and that attitude is expressed in a shvur. Now, were just for these psukim and shir hashir, it would be very difficult to translate these oaths, these attitudes, into actual normative behavior. But the Gemara in Ksuvos records a conversation between Rav Yehuda and Rav Zera, which offer two very different views of these oaths, but each of which assumes some practical behavior or response rather than just the general, uh, general commentary. The Gemara in Ksuvos Kuf Yud describes Rabbi Zera avoiding Rabbi Yehuda. Rabbi Zera wanted to make Aliyah from Bavel to move to Israel, and he avoided Rabbi Yehuda. Why did he avoid Rabbi Yehuda? Because evidently Rabbi Yehuda had claimed, Kol Haola mi Bavel Eretz Yisrael, whoever emigrates from Babylonia, from Bavel to Israel, over the essay, violates a mitzvah's essay. Buda was clearly um, an opponent of Aliyah, at least at that stage in Jewish history. Whether he was opposed to Aliyah per se, or opposed to Aliyah particularly from Bavel, which had become the Torah center, and he, he um, wanted to deter the migration of Torah resources. It's an interesting question. The first Pasuk he quotes in a Pasuk in Yermia, Perach of Zion, Bavel Yuvu Veshama Yiyu Adyom Pakdil Sam Nuam Hashem, they should be in Bavel and remain there until I remember them and until I return them. And uh, even though Rabbi Huda lived long after the Golas Bavel had ended, evidently he felt like the true Geula from Bavel had yet to occur, at least based on this Pasuk. There's a very famous Pnei Yoshua, at least on Rabbi Huda's position, that Am Yisrael, many members of Am Yisrael believed that the return to Eretz Yisrael was not a complete or an entire Geula, for all sorts of reasons. I mentioned an earlier Shurim because it had been insufficiently responded to, and therefore they chose to remain in Bavel, based on the Pasuk in Yermia. He calls other Pesukim later, which I'll mention, but clearly Rabbi Huda was an anti-Aliyah statement, or issued an anti-Aliyah statement at that early stage. Rabzeira, of course, responds to Rabbi Huda. Rabzeira wanted to make Aliyah. He claimed that those Pesukim don't describe the necessity for Jews to remain in Bavel, but rather that the Kleisharis, which were stolen by Nebuchadnezzar and moved to Bavel, the Kleisharis will remain in Bavel until the proper time of redemption occurs. Having heard Reb Zera's response and reinterpretation of this Pasuk in Yirmiya, Rabbi Huda invokes the Psukim in Shir Hashir. He says, the real source, presumably, for my non-Aliyah stance is Hishbati Eschem Benos Yushalayim, he quotes the Pasuk in Perak Beis, the Gemara has uh, some extended debate about these Pesukim. Ultimately, Rabbi Zera believes that you are allowed to make Aliyah, but you are not allowed to make Aliyah Bichoma, with force or military opposition. Rabbi Huda interprets the Pesukim a little bit differently. But both believe that the Shvua demands as follows. And this is the language of the Gemara. To Amar, Rabbi Yossi, Rabbi Chanina, Gimel, Shavuos, Halalu, Lama. Why are there three Shavuos? Commenting on the three different Sukkim. One in Perak Beis. One in Perak Gimel. One in Perak Ches. Why are there three Sukkim? So Rabbi Yossi, Rabbi Chanina claims that there are actually three Shavuos. Two directed at the Jewish people. Achas, 
Shalo Ya'alu Yisrael Bichoma. One is that the Jews shouldn't forcibly return. We should not rebel. We should not um, betray the nations who are hosting us. And God actually directs that third Shavua to the Gentiles. You should not torment or persecute the Jewish people excessively. Remember the term in the Pesach, the literal level refers to Jews, but Chazal take this phrase, Binos Yushalayim, as an indirect reference to Gentile nations, based on the fact that the Yasid Lavo, when Mashiach comes, Yushalayim will truly be the central metropolis of the entire civilization, and all other nations, all other cities, will be suburbs, will be adjuncts. The word Binos can refer to a suburb, an adjunct of a larger city. Cheshbon Uvenoseha, the Torah writes, describing the word Benos, literally a daughter or a satellite of a larger urban area, sort of like an urban sprawl. So Benos Yushalayim can refer to the Gentiles, who will one day become suburbs of Jerusalem. So according to the Gemara, of these three Shavuos, two were directed at the Jews. They should not ascend to Israel in force. Also, they should not rebel against the surrounding nations. One was directed against the Gentiles that they should not persecute the Jewish people too severely. Ultimately, the Gemara claims there were an additional three Shavuos. After all, in each Pasuk, there's almost a dual language, im ta'iru v'im ta'oru, not to awaken, not to prompt. So, if there are three Pesukim, each of which contains two oaths, then ultimately there are six oaths, and the Gemara adds several other issues. One is you should not reveal the end of days, you should not either distance redemption through um, inappropriate behavior, according to one girsa, according to one version. You shouldn't um, aggressively advance Geula, which would be parallel to some of the earlier Shavuos. And finally, you should not uh, allow Gentiles to participate in uh, announcing the new moon and establishing the time cycles of the Jewish calendar, which is meant to be an so autonomous Jewish experience. Basically, there are six Shavuos, three Psokim and Shir Hashirim, each containing two languages, in Ta'iru v'im Ta'aru. But as far as the redemptive experience is concerned, the most important two Shavuos, not to rebel, not to ascend to Israel through force, through military aggressiveness. And these Shavuos are adopted by both Rabbi Yehuda as well as Rabbi Zerah. Rabbi Yehuda actually interpreted it in an individual manner, and therefore he felt it was forbidden to make Aliyah based on the Shavuos. Rabbi Zera actually believed that he could ascend, as long as he was not ascending through aggressive military behavior, he could move to Israel without violating these oaths. Be that as it may, of course, how do we justify moving in mass, establishing a state, Maintaining an army? How do we justify this? It's one thing for Abzera to make Aliyah. Rabbi Huda didn't make Aliyah. Rabbi Huda felt that even at a personal level, these oaths were meant to almost invalidate the mitzvahs, a famous commentary. The Ramban, in his comments on Parshas Bihar, claims that there's actually a mitzvah, one of the 613 mitzvahs to move to Israel. The Rambam does not cite the mitzvah of living in Israel as one of the 613. 
And the Rambam's omission is the cause of much controversy. A well-known commentary on the Rambam, the Megillas Esther, claims that ultimately these oaths of Shir Hashirim effectively cancel the mitzvah, effectively delimit the mitzvah. The mitzvah applied during the original capture of the land of Israel, perhaps they even applied when Ezra returned with only 40,000 Jews, but it may have applied. But it certainly does not apply in an environment in which the four oaths had restrained Jewish response to exile. This is a very well-known statement of the Megillus Esther, and one could argue that it was really the position adopted by Rabbi Yehuda, over ultimately citing the oaths in Shir Hashirim. Rebzeira felt that as long as he ascended on an individual basis, it's not independent of any political or military activity, it was legitimate. But how do we justify it? This, of course, is a uh, question which ca- cuts right at the heart of the Zionist enterprise. A very famous and, and biting response. The original Satmar Rebbe in his Sefer Vayoel Moshe rejected the entire Zionist enterprise, a famous opposition to the entire process of Zionism based on this Gemara. In fact, it's not just an oath, but the Gemara continues, Amar Rebbe Lazar, Baruch Hashem warned us, If you adhere to the Shvua, fine. Im Lav, if you disobey the Shvua, Ani matir es b'sarchem kitzvaos uchayelos hasadeh. I will release suffering upon you so that your flesh will be as vulnerable as gazelles, as deers. You'll be unprotected as the beasts of the field, the beasts of the jungle. So according to the Satmar Rebbe, this was not just a request from HaKadosh Baruch Hu or an oath, but it carries very stiff consequences if the oath is betrayed. What is our response? How do we respond to this Gemara in Ksivos? Again, whether we rule like Rabbi Huda, whether we rule like Rabbi Zera, Rabbi Zera did not start an entire movement to return. It wasn't an organized national experience, but ours is. And how do we justify our experience? There are essentially four different attitudes or approaches in dealing with this Gemara and reconciling it with a pro-Zionist or pro-redemptive position vis-à-vis current events. One position, one approach is staked by the Maharal in his comments to Ksuvos and they're reiterated in some fashion by the Avnei Nezer, the Sakachava, in a very, very famous um, essay in Simen Taf Nun Vav about this Gemara and Ksuvos. They both phrase the following question. They both struggle with the following issue. How is an oath tendered to a people? An oath is typically an individual experience governed and regulated by very, very strict halachic ritual, how to take an oath, in what manner, how to articulate. Hashem demands an oath, but who effectively is responding and accepting this oath? Same question could be raised about the oath demanded of the Gentiles. They should not persecute the Jews too excessively. Which Gentile agreed to this oath? Who was the representative? Do Gentiles have oaths in general? 
According to the Maharal and to the Avdei Nasser, they speak different languages. The Maharal is writing in a more metaphysical language. Um, the Avdei Nasser has the element of Hasidus, but Kabbalah, but effectively, they both claim that these are not normative halachic regulations. But rather, when facing the prospect that Am Yisrael will descend into Galus for a long and torturous journey, Baruch Hu realizes that certain rules of engagement, certain official rules have to be established to sort of stabilize and regulate this process. So Hashem sets up, it's more of a gzera, of a metaphysical, historical, divine reality than a demand of particular individuals. Hashem sets the rules of engagement that will be hosted by nations and to a degree will be challenged by nations. Inquisitions and pogroms. And, but there's a limit to how much persecution and how often. And Am Yisrael, for its part, will remain in that goals, will suffer its historical fate, and they won't rebel in a constant fashion, but they'll live under the sponsorship and and uh, and governance of each nation, Shalom Yimridu, and they'll not constantly seek this endless return to Israel. But there's no Isser, there's no Mitzvah, there's no Shavua. It's rather HaKadosh Baruch Hu articulating a setup, a historical process that will calibrate Gulls. In the absence of any Shavua, once the Jewish people who HaKadosh Baruch Hu's intervention in history sense that a return at a collective national level is imminent, that the time is right, that there are divine signs, as some of the Shi'urim later will discuss, they can return at a national level by exerting force and in no way violate any particular Shavuah. Again, it doesn't seem to be the simple reading of the Gemara, because Rev. Yehuda actually determined his own behavior based on the Shavuah. Perhaps Rev. Yehuda could agree to the Maharal and claim that since he still felt that the terms of Gullus were meant to be sustained, he didn't see any divine signs of return, there was nothing altering his view of history, then he felt that he should sustain the, um, the terms of Gullus that HaKadosh Baruch Hu had dictated. This is one response to the four Shavuos, to the six Shavuos, excuse me, and to the manner in which um, the redemptive process in no way violates HaKadosh Baruch Hu's original promises or decrees. The second issue relates to, of course, the style and nature by which we return. I mentioned before that Rabbi Huda took this as a blanket prohibition, or at least a blanket um, policy. Rabzeira, who did ascend, who did move, who did emigrate to Israel, claimed that the Shavua only prohibited moving Bechoma. Shalom Ya'alu Yisrael Bechoma. Now the word Choma literally means a wall. You should not ascend in a wall-like fashion. If they don't ascend as a wall, then they can return. And he didn't see himself as emigrating as a Choma. What does it mean to ascend as a Choma? It's a very uh, ambiguous statement. So Rashi in Ksuvos interprets 
שלא יעלו בחומה יחד ביד חזקה. They cannot emigrate together through force. Rashi describes a scenario whereby the entire Jewish nation would group together, would band together, form its army, and re-seize control of Eretz Yisrael in a manner similar to the original entry in the days of Yoshua. So Zerah certainly wasn't Yachad. He certainly was a solitary emigre rather than a member of an entire nation, and he also didn't ascend with force. If we take Rashi's parameters, and presumably these two parameters evoke two different images of the metaphor of a wall. A wall exerts force and, and it, it blunts aggress- aggression, but it can also be seen as uh, an element which evokes force, and a wall also suggests unity and collective experience. In our experience of returning to Eretz Yisrael, neither of these conditions were violated. So the entire Jewish nation did not move to Israel en masse. It was not a national movement that captured each and every Jew as the entire Jewish nation returning, but rather it was a cumulative process which is still still ongoing, still evolving. But even if you feel that there is a national flavor, Zionist Congress, representatives of the Jewish people, certainly was one which was assisted by a world community eager to establish a Jewish homeland. Once we arrived in Eretz Yisrael, of course, then we had to establish a military presence in order to sustain and continue to sustain our survival. But the acquisition of Israel and the return to the land was not and is not primarily a military exercise. We sense this. And even lands which we have recently seized to military experiences are lands which are still hotly debated and and uh, certainly lands that are still vulnerable to the geopolitical process. Ironically, this factor makes our redemptive experience even more valid because it isn't the product of direct military intervention. So this is the second response to the four oaths, to the six oaths, three psukim times two. Not just that the general policies, metaphysical realities that HaKadosh Baruch Hu establishes, but that even if they apply on a very, very personal basis, Reb Zerah didn't violate them, and we're not violated. Of course, the potential flaw in the statement is that we'd have to rule like Reb Zerah, we'd have to paskin like Reb Zerah, because Reb Yehuda felt that it was a blanket prohibition, whether we ascend in a wall-like fashion or we just descend, there's an Isser involved. And the question of whether we rule like Reb Zeir or like Reb Yehuda could be a particularly thorny one. The Rambam happens to quote Reb Yehuda. So that question could become a very, very, um, as I said, a very, very um, challenging issue if we pose this response. The third response, which is a very popular response, and it's based, interestingly enough, on comments of the Talmidei HaRashba. I've never seen this Rashba quoted. I've heard the answer cited. But uh, I found a source, the students of the Rashba cited in the Shittim Kubetzes in Ksuvos, the very tail end of the Shittim Kubetzes in Ksuvos of the 13th Perak. The Rashba claims as follows, or he, he implies as follows. These oaths are not unilateral, but they're part of a package. A Kodesh Baruch Hu packages the oaths to the Jews and the oaths to the Gentiles. 
reminiscent of what the Maharal said, there's a certain pattern of exile that a Kodesh Baruch Hu intends. According to the Maharal, it's just that, it's just a historical pattern, but perhaps it could even be a Shavuah. And Hashem demands of the Jewish people not to rebel, not to emigrate to Israel, and He demands of the Gentiles not to persecute us excessively. What happens if the Gentiles betray their oaths, betray their duties, and do persecute us excessively, and do chase us, and do torment us? Perhaps that relieves the Jewish people of their own responsibilities and of their own oaths. It's not incidental, of course, that the establishment of the State of Israel occurred three years after the close of the Holocaust. One of the primary differences in how different Jewish groups view the Holocaust is as follows. Some some view it, I don't want to generalize, but typically in many um, non-Zionist circles, the Holocaust is viewed as just one in a string of events which have punctuated, tragically punctuated, the exilic experience, the experience in diaspora, it may be more ferocious and vicious in its intensity, but essentially doesn't represent or constitute a qualitative change in the events of the last 2,000 years. We were always persecuted, we were always discriminated against, we were always expelled, we were always murdered. That's the challenge of living in Belus. From Inquisition to Pogrom, from Order de Fe to Gas Chamber. Essentially, it's a one continuous process. More pro-Zionistic camps view the Holocaust as a major shift, as unlike anything that had occurred until that point. Yes, there were pogroms, and yes, there were inquisitions, and but this was a fundamental shift in the course of not just human history, but of the history of Galos and our interaction with the surrounding peoples. That six million people could be methodically eradicated in an attempt to completely eliminate anything and everything Jewish, this is seen by pro-Zionist camps, not just by pro-Zionist camps, but by them as well, as a decided shift in the course of history. There's a very interesting sefer called the Eish Kodesh by one of the famed Hasidish Rebbeim. And this was a uh, sefer of collected Divrei um, Torah given in the ghetto during the times of crisis, during the Holocaust years. And uh, in one of his drushas, um, one of the, um, so in one of his um, essays, Rav Kalanimus Kalman Shapira, the Rebbe of the Warsaw Ghetto, one of the Rebbe in the Warsaw Ghetto, I think it's in 1941, around Hanukkah time, in one of his Divrei Torah, he asserts that the Holocaust is really no different, and he wonders why people are struggling with the metaphysical implications. A year later, I think in 1942, he gives the same Devartara on the same Parsha, and he adds a little footnote, having witnessed the deteriorating situation, he now agrees that this is really a dramatic shift. It's a very, very interesting and provocative um, shift of, um, of attitude, of consciousness. If you feel that the Holocaust really is that dramatic shift, it's not just a continuation of the litany, of struggle within Jewish exile, but it is a dramatic shift and the Gentiles have betrayed the oath that they should not persecute the Jewish people, Yoser Midai, in the language of the Gemara Ksivos, 
then, having witnessed the abandonment of their oath, we are now freed of our responsibilities, and in response, we now have the right even to ascend militarily, to seize our land, in response to the inordinate suffering that we've been exposed to. This is a very, very powerful statement, one which I think resonates with people who lived either through the process of the Holocaust or the two or three generations subsequent to the Holocaust as we have lived through it. The Rashba actually, of course, having lived well before these events, the Rashba seems to derive this from an interesting textual phenomenon. I mentioned before that the Shavua appears three times in Shir Hashir, in Perak Beis, Pasuk Zayin, Perak Gimel, Pasuk Hei, and Perak Ches, Pasuk Dalet. Hishbati Yischem, Benos Yushalayim, I demand an oath, Mata'iru, Mata'aru, Imta'iru, Imta'aru, don't awaken, don't advance Geula before it's time. In Parakei, there's another Shvua, without the phrases Im Ta'iru Im Ta'aru. Hishbati Yaschem Benos Yushalayim, I demand of you an oath, Im Timsiu as Dodi, Matagiduli, Shecholas Ahavaani. This is an oath which seemingly is posed not by the male lover of Shir Hashirim, which represents the Rabboni Shalom, but by the female counterpart. And she's asking people who seem to be walking through Jerusalem, if you find my lover in Tim Sirisdodi, Matagidulo, please tell him Shecholas Ahava Ani that I am sick with love, I'm suffused with love, and I miss him. The Tamide Harashba claim that this oath is a scenario that a Baruchu, so to speak, is trying to avoid by demanding that the Gentiles not persecute us too ex- exorbitantly. Tells the Gentiles, don't torture them, don't murder them, for if you do, then they will come looking for me, and they will remind me of the love which once existed, the everlasting love between God and His people, they'll make reference to the Shavuah that you have abandoned, and I will redeem them. So according to the Rashba, that fourth mention of a Shavuah in Shir Hashirim, effectively, reminds the Gentiles that if and when they betray their oath, then we are released from our oaths and we can once again return to the land of Israel. The fourth and final response to the four oaths is, of course, the prospect that HaKadosh Baruch Hu demands these oaths. It's, it's a bit of a provocative response because it could either be right or it can be terribly wrong. We're only limited by these oaths as long as Golos remains intact and in force. Once the redemptive process begins, and we see signs and omens and indications of that process, then the oaths, even if they are personal responsibilities, no longer obtain, because redemption has begun. These are oaths that don't just dictate the terms of Golos, as the Maharal suggested, from a metaphysical or historical standpoint, but actually govern personal behavior, but only under the conditions of Gullus, not under the conditions of Gula. As I said before, you don't know what Gula is until it actually occurs, and you can ratify it retrospectively. Rabbi Kiva believed that Bar Kokhba was the Mashiach, and he may very well have been, but history has proven Rabbi Kiva wrong. So if a person feels that he senses various redemptive signs, then perhaps he's released from those oaths but he better guarantee that those are accurate signs of redemption rather than mirages of a slight abatement 
um, the exile in the diaspora. This, of course, begs a larger question. What are the signs of redemption? What have we witnessed in our time that may indicate that Akrish Baruch Hu has invited our return and is prompting our return? This, of course, is a topic well beyond the parameters of this year, but it does provide a fourth response to the four oaths in the way that they would seem to limit return to Israel. One response is the Maharal's response, so these are not actual normative oaths, but general historical procedures or regulations. Second response, at least if we rule like Rabbi Zera, we are prescribed from returning in mass as an entire nation with military force. This is not; uh, These are not the conditions of our recent return. Number three, based on the comments of the Rashba, or the Tamidim of the Rashba in Ksuvos, that we are only prohibited from returning as long as the Gentile nations, so to speak, keep their end of the bargain. Once that agreement has been breached, we are allowed or even invited to return. And finally, that the four oaths establish behavior during times of diaspora and galos, but once redemption has begun, the process should surge independent of these oaths.